Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get into it. Genesis chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today. We're going to be working through one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the account of the flood. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover. So if you do not have a Bible, I'd love for you to use the one that's in the chair in front of you, and you can find Genesis chapter 6 is where we'll start today. You can find Genesis 6 on about page 5 or so. And again, as we say just about every Sunday, if you do not have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible and and keep it as your own and read it. Well, we have some, just I think one glaring sort of obvious challenge this morning as we look at this text. And it is the familiarity of the text. I think even people that probably have very little familiarity with the Bible at least have some some knowledge of this story just through popular culture. In fact, in God's providence, there's a movie coming out this Friday evening uh, that's going to hit the theaters. We didn't plan that. It was just kind of the way maybe the Lord wanted us to go over this story before Hollywood uh, gave us their script so that we would actually get the biblical version. Um, I'm not saying don't see it or be entertained by it. I'm just saying that, you know, don't let Hollywood... Uh, define the Bible for you. I think that they're very likely going to miss many gospel threads through it and probably not capture the point of the story, but that's just my speculation. Um, you know, no commentaries. Uh, so if you see me there on Saturday watching the movie with my kids, don't call me a hypocrite. I'm just saying. We, got, we have God's revelation to us already. So we are we're prone today to... Uh, it's preconceived notions. We're prone to thinking that we kind of know what the story is about. And I think we're also sort of prone to sort of categorizing it as some sort of strange, sort of compartmentalized story of this different sort of God in the Old Testament. Or we're just sort of prone to say, that was weird, kind of a morality tale. Boy, God is pretty angry. But I think that in this passage is some clear, clear gospel truths. And so I'm going to give you my outline up front, okay? We're not going to work back through it. We're just, I'm just going to give you the four points because I know that you are an outline-dependent congregation. I've made you that way. And so I want to ease you from any nervousness wondering where I'm going. So I'm going to give you my outline up front, but then we're just going to kind of stay in the story and make these points as we go. So four points that are four things that I think we see in the flood. First, we see... The example of Noah's obedience. Talk a little bit about that. We'll stop along the way. We see also God's abundant patience with the world. And hopefully we'll see it in our lives as well. Thirdly, we see God's just judgment. We see him judging the earth. And this being a picture of the judgment that is to come. And that God in his judgment is not harsh or capricious or evil or mean. But he is just and good and righteous. We see God's just judgment in the flood. And then finally, and I think most importantly, we see the gospel. We see God's gracious salvation. So we see four things. An example of obedience in Noah. 
We see God's abundant patience. We see God's just judgment. And we see God's gracious salvation. All right, well, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll work our way through this, this important passage. The Lord, as we come now, we pray for your grace to us. I pray that we would humble ourselves and let the word examine us, that we would not sit in judgment over it, but that we would let it judge us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, heart to believe the gospel truths of this passage. I pray for Christians in this room that they would be stirred with deeper humility and more earnest worship because of your grace. I pray for unbelievers that are in this room, and certainly there are some, some that may think that they are right with you, but they're not. Others that are consciously aware that they do not believe the Bible. Maybe they're just here by invitation of a friend or here to see a baby dedicated. I pray that today, Lord, for people that are not yet following Christ, trusting in your provision of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, I pray that you, by your kind mercy, would open their eyes and give them the gift that you command from them, that you would give them what you require of them, which is faith and repentance and trust, which leads them into true and satisfying joy. Lord, would you do this? Would you be glorified this morning? And would you help us see beautiful things in your word? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And let me just stop here and say that. That was a quick stop. Um, I am prone when I get going to mix up names in the Bible. I think you guys are aware of that. Okay. So if at any time when I'm going fast and I accidentally say maybe Moses when I mean Noah... Give me grace and don't spend the next five minutes snickering and elbowing the person. <laughs> and then break the internet by emailing me, okay? I may do it. Okay. Like I did before. And you guys were just, I mean, I could just see the giddiness in you. I thought, what's going on? What's going on? I said something wrong. <gasps> okay. These are the generations of Noah, who might be referred to other names as we get going. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But remember what we read and we ended with last week in verse 8? Look, Noah was not like righteous in and of himself, right? He found favor in God, which means that God in his kind mercy gave Noah the grace that he required of Noah. Noah is a, is a very early picture of God's electing sovereign grace. It wasn't like everybody else was bad and Noah was the one bright shining star. Noah was with the rest of humanity evil and God in his kindness sets Noah apart, gives him favor so that Noah can now be righteous. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight 
and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 500 cubits. And its height, 300 cubits. I know we're not very familiar with that term of measurement, but the ark was a huge vessel about 500 feet long, 75 to 100 feet wide, massive structure. Verse 16, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Well, let's stop there and make a few observations and let's maybe handle a few objections that I think our culture has that maybe even you have. One is, let's realize that there is, I think, very very clear and well-known and accepted geological evidence for the flood. I think that's the question that probably strikes most of us when our first reading of this is that, well, did this worldwide flood really happen? And I think amongst even faithful biblical scholars, there's some that believe that the flood was just a localized event. Others believe that it was a universal covering of the earth. I believe that it was a worldwide catastrophic event. I think that there's just too many problems with a localized flood. I think that there's no reason for God to gather all the animals. He could have just had them move to the edges of the flood. And then what does the edge of this very high water line look like? Is it just a a bank? Not that God couldn't do that. Obviously, he can control the waters. But I think that the clear implication of the text is that this was worldwide, catastrophic, full-on flood. But there is great, even for this, geological evidence. There are marine animal fossils in the middle of every continent and at the top of mountain ranges, which, is, which points to even unbelieving 
non-Christian geologists and scientists say that this fossil evidence points towards some cataclysmic worldwide flood event. We see clustered fossil groupings, a bunch of animals together embedded in some sort of sediment, which points to a catastrophic event where all of these animals died suddenly. And we see rapidly deposited sediments of layers. Now, I'm going to stop here. It's like a couple weeks ago when we were talking about on Wednesday night about reproductive issues and birth control and... uh, human anatomy and all that kind of stuff, and anytime I get out on any sort of scientific ledge, I feel like I'm, a, I'm walking the plank because I, I'm not a scientist, but there is very clear geographical scientific evidence of, of a worldwide catastrophic flood, even in the, the strands of rock and sediment that, that are pushed across continents, that the only way that that could have happened is in some cataclysmic event. And then we see, in virtually every ancient culture, there being some type of flood myth. And some people point to that as against the evidence of the Bible and the flood, but I actually think it points towards it because it is, it's like, you know, the game of telephone where you tell one person something and then it just kind of works its way and by the time you get to the end of the line, the story has changed. Well, we see that, that as cultures start to grow, we see stories as, as, as God is not giving grace to one particular culture or whatever, God, this culture is rebelling against God, we see the story changing. But in every culture, virtually every culture, we see some form of this flood story. But only in this, in the Bible, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, do we see such detail and specificity of the flood. The next question beyond geological evidence, I think, is just the ark. Like, how did Noah do this? Well, again, I think we, we see God's kind providence. God is, has clearly given Noah the ability to do that. And people have tried to break this down. And there is nothing in the engineering of the ark that Noah would not have been able to do with the, with the, with the things that he had available to him at that time. People wonder, how long did it take Noah to build it? The Bible doesn't clearly say, but if we can estimate that it was not just over you know, six months I mean, it was probably many, many years. I think that's why God gave Noah three sons. And they were born when Noah was about 500 years old, and then the flood comes about 100 years later. And so I think probably when those sons were, you know, they had a little bit of meat on their bones, maybe 25 years in, God, with the help of these three sons, and maybe hired help. I mean, it's not just these four men. Maybe he contracted out help from people. But the point is, is that God gave these Noah and his three sons, the ability to, over the course of many, many years, build this ark. And that's a great encouragement to me as a dad of sons. The next time they complain about yard work or picking up sticks, I'm like, come on, boys. Like Noah's sons, I mean, these cats, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, for 50 years were cutting down trees and straightening out wood and, you know, making an ark. So mowing the lawn ain't so bad. (laughs) And then another question that comes up is just the animals. How did they all fit into the ark? Well, a couple things that we need to consider is that uh, there weren't as many animals at that time. Notice that what the Bible says there, that two of every kind. Okay, so for example, you don't have to have every type of dog species. You just have to have like the beginning of the fountain of the dog species. And then from those two dogs, the male and female dog, come 
every sort of dog. Let me, let me tell you, the, the, we've got, a couple months ago, we just had one dog. And in God, God's kind providence, we now have three dogs. It's another story we don't have time to get into. But one of those dogs is, you look up mutt in the dictionary, there's a picture of this dog. It's the dog that I gave a haircut to. The bad haircuts. One ear is crooked, scraggly looking little thing. That dog has descended from a whole bunch of combinations of other dogs. Let me just put it to you that way. <laughs> and so from these parent kinds of species, after the flood, when they got off of the ark, come all sorts of other species within that kind. And so we're not talking about every single, two of every single animal on the earth. We're talking about kinds. And then they're juvenile animals. They're smaller. They could be young before they get very big, even the big animals. And so clearly, again, scientists, even unbelieving scientists, have mapped out what they thought the animal kingdom looked like at that point, and there is sufficient room in the ark for these animals. And then I think probably one of the big questions that we have is, well, how did they all sort of, you know, act and get along? And how did they come into the ark? Did Noah tame them? No, friends, clearly the Bible tells us that God brought them to Noah. Now, friends, this is where I think we need to be careful when we read the Bible. Because we bring a sort of modern scientific enlightenment suspicion to the power of the creator of the universe and the Bible that he's written. And we think, oh, well, that, come on. That, that. Friends, what, what did we just read a couple weeks ago in Genesis 1? That God made everything out of nothing. If you make everything out of nothing, you can cause an elephant or a lion to walk a certain way across a bridge onto a boat and to chill for about 12 months. You, like that, if you can bench 350 pounds, you can pick up the little pink, little, you know, five pound arm curl things. That's just the way I think. Come on, friends. Let's not approach the text with this sort of anti-supernaturalism. The God who is over and sovereign and controls everything can cause a lion to walk onto a boat and be calm. I mean, come on. All through the scriptures, we see God's control of animals. I mean, he, later on with Elijah, he causes a raven to drop stakes for Elijah to feed him. A little bit later, for Elijah's successor, Elisha, right after he takes over, there's some little punk kids giving Elisha the job, you know, because he was bald-headed apparently. Apparently Elisha wouldn't, you know, just didn't have it going on on top. And there's these kids busting Elisha's chops, and God calls these she-bears out of the woods to maul these little punks. Look it up, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 24. Some she-bears, whatever those are, <laughs> to come slap around some little punk kids. <laughs> right? God causes a donkey to speak. And at the end of the Bible, we see this beautiful picture of God causing the lion to lay down with the lamb. Friends, do not... Do not bring an unbelieving anti-supernaturalism to the text. And don't be intimidated by a world that does. Right? God can cause animals to walk in a straight line, to sit on the ark for a year, and to chill. Let's keep reading. Chapter 7, verse 1. 
Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And some people have made a big deal about verse 2 there where they say, oh, well, up, up in chapter 6 it says just take two, and then it says seven here. There's a contradiction. No, in this particular instance, God is just telling him to take these clean animals so that they can eat these clean animals. And then when Noah gets off of the ark at the end, which we'll go over next week, we see him sacrificing. In fact, we see at the end of chapter 8 that we'll read today, Noah offering a sacrifice to God. So this is not a contradiction. It's just an add-on for the sake of eating and sacrifice. Verse 3, And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Verse 5, chapter 7, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now that's where, again, we have to pause and not read the Bible so quickly. Friends, think about what's going on there. And this is where we see a picture of Noah's example of obedience. Imagine what it was like for Noah Like, this did not happen over the course of about a week where he just had to endure some chastisement and some some pushback from the culture. Over the course of about 50 years, likely, him and his sons are cutting down trees, building an ark. People are wondering, Noah, what are you doing? What are you doing? Imagine what it was like for Noah. Obeying God seemed ridiculous in the eyes of the culture around him. Friends, one of the reasons that God did this is to point forward to the coming judgment which awaits the world and to to remind us that as it was in the days of Noah, so it is with us. Jesus says that, in fact, in the Gospels. Are we to expect any different about the culture's opposition of what it means to obey God? And it makes me wonder, as we look at Noah's example of obedience, is there any countercultural flavor to our faith? I mean, really countercultural flavor. You know, it's easy to kind of take the sort of the big level sort of Christian stances on stuff, right? You know, and to just kind of go along with the party line. You know, we're vote this way. We like Duck Dynasty, you know. And those are fine. But I'm talking about these more subtle idols of our culture for us to take stands against, even in our own lives. Is there anything in our lives that isn't just easily put into the category of a conservative voting block? but that really stands against a culture that is dead and dying and rebellious against God. You see, in the Deep South, we are particularly prone to fall into this false gospel of justification by conservatism. I have all the right views, all the right political views. I vote for this guy. I have all the stances. I do this. But friends, you can go to hell being justified by political conservatism or cultural Christianity. Is there anything in our lives that stands against a culture that is against God and against the subtle idols that God is 
is saying the same things about these subtle idols that, he, idols that he says about the idols of this culture that was evil and rejected God. Well, friends, they're too plenty, too numerous, but I see them in my own life. I see myself prone to make an idol of my children. I see myself prone to make an idol of my doctrine. I see myself prone to make an idol of, of, of just how squared away I want my life to be projected. And none of these things fall in these sort of obvious blocks that we can just sort of comfortably put ourselves in. Is there any countercultural flavor to my faith? Is there anything that I am obeying God in as a Christian that looks strange and ridiculous to the world? I think one of the things that this story is commending to us is that should be the norm for the follower of Christ. We see also not just Noah's obedience, we see clearly God's abundant patience, right? This isn't just a week or two of time passing here. It's not just God saying, you know what, this is jacked up. I'm going to shake the etch sketch. Noah, get on that ark. Let's get this thing going. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on. Get in the car. Get in the car, son. <laughs> That's not what God is doing. 50 years, very likely that he's really preaching the gospel through Noah to an onlooking world. In fact, the New Testament interprets Noah's action and his his role not as just the builder of the ark, but in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. Noah is preaching the gospel. And through Noah, God is being patient to an onlooking world. I believe that if any of those people would have repented and turned from their wickedness, that there would have been room for them in the ark. God was patient with a rebellious world through Noah as he built the ark. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, where it speaks of this. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And then Peter makes this connection with with what's going on in Noah's day. Verse 19, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, friends, when we preached through 1 Peter a few months ago, we went through that verse. That's a tricky verse. Lots of things have been said about that. Lots of interpretations of what it means for Jesus to uh, proclaim to the spirits in prison. Prison. What is that saying? I think one of the things that's happening there is that through Noah, Jesus is preaching even before his incarnation to this rebellious world. And, and God is being patient to them. Friends, let's not just let God's patience just sort of be a cultural category. I mean, let's let it land on our lives. I think about how, how patient. <laughs> I think. Think about how patient God has been with me. Like, you know, I mean, I was, you you see the relatively cleaned up Brad. But man, God has been patient with me. Like, I I have not deserved his grace. I didn't deserve a, a big brother. I know I dog him a lot, and I told you about that time that he locked me in a bathroom over the weekend when my parents were gone and fed me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and water. 
is rough on me, no doubt about it. But, 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 but God, I didn't deserve a, a big brother to go away to college and hear the gospel and get saved and then come back and in kindness confront me and my sin as a senior in high school and preach the gospel to me. I didn't deserve that type of kindness. When the Lord seized me, I was not looking for him, right? And then, and then God puts me on a plane and he sends me across the continent from California to New York and my first day at at West Point, I didn't deserve that upper-class cadet whose job was to haze me and yell at me, and after he got done doing that quite well for about an hour, thank you very much, at the end of breaking me down, I didn't deserve for him to say, now tell me about your crazy last name. Are you, like, with a name like that, are you a Christian? Yes, and then he invites me to this church right outside the gates of West Point in Highland Falls, New York, where there's this young pastor who's planting a church, who discipled me, who was kind to me, who worked with me in my sin, who even one time when he found out about some deep sin in my life, even though I was confessing Christ but living another way, he called me into his office and he didn't cast me aside. He gave me mercy and called me to repentance. Friends, I did not deserve that. And then 20 years ago, I come to Fort Benning, Georgia as a, as a young lieutenant, thinking maybe on the, on, the, on the edge of continuing to follow Christ or just do whatever I want. And God, in his kindness, brought me into a family, caused me to meet a girl and to be married to a, a sweet, sweet girl who loved the Lord. And God, in his kind providence, kept me friends. And maybe... Maybe he's done the same thing for you, right? Right? Come on, God's patience is not just some sort of theological category. Like it lands on our lives. And maybe a good thing to do this afternoon would would not be so much to take a nap or to watch basketball, but would be to think about God's patience and kindness in your life, that God is preaching the gospel to you. Do not forsake the abundant patience of God, friends. He is kind and he is long-suffering. But eventually he will also judge. And that's the story as we keep reading in chapter 7, verse 6. Let's keep reading. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Do you notice that um, no children are mentioned? Uh, I think it's interesting. We talked about parenting earlier. You know, God tamed these animals, caused the animals to chill for over a year, but we don't have any record of Noah having any grandchildren. And I think that's just God's kindness. (laughs) Like, can you imagine... (laughs) Can you, I mean, I'll put up with hundreds and hundreds of wild beasts on an ark. But can you imagine having some grandbabies on that mug? I mean, Jennifer and I were considering a last year driving the family to California to see uh, my family. We were just thinking, ah, that'd be a great road trip. Let's put the kids in the van. We'll just take our time. We'll drive across America. We'll see it. It will be awesome. And about a month before we 
we're going to pull the trigger on doing that, we just drove to Montgomery to the Montgomery Zoo <laughs> with all four of our kids. And it was just a bad day. And that, no, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> Bought the plane tickets that afternoon. I just think it's God's kindness that, that he waited for Noah's sons to have children till after the ark. Verse 8 of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Can you imagine, friends? Let's not let this just be a pristine little Bible story where we've got a little flannel graph, you know, a little felt board cut out of Noah, smiling, you know, pointing to the ark, and lions with smiles on their faces walking two by two. Friends, this is a horrific, dreadful scene. This is as intense as it gets. Verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So not only is the rain falling from above, There are these springs and fountains of the deep bursting forth from the ground. So this, look, the the waters that that rose in the flood, it's not like the bathtub just getting, you know, so people couldn't just sort of like, you know, float on the top of some, I mean, there's a catastrophic, tumultuous storm happening here, bursting forth from the ground, deluge from the sky. Verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life, and those that entered, the, entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, listen to this. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So here in this catastrophic horrific event, we see also clearly a picture of God's just judgment. 
Friends, remember the description of humanity. Only evil was in the heart of man. Violence covered the face of the earth. God was just to judge a rebellious, idolatrous world. Friends, again, this is where we as modern man are prone to sort of sanitize and to buy into the lie that we are pretty good people and that our culture isn't that bad or somehow maybe we've improved and become civilized since these barbaric, you know, pre-primeval cultures. No, friends, the Bible is clear that mankind has rebelled against a good and gracious God and God has the right, he has the power, and he has the wisdom to judge the world. And when we look at this, and we sometimes feel, oh, how could God do that? Friends, I think that when we, when we wrestle with that, or when we reject the Bible based on these clear, just judgments of God that we see, as intense as they are, I think we, we show that we don't clearly understand the holiness of God, and we don't understand the severity of human sin. God is infinitely holy and righteous. And his beauty and his holiness has no end. And human sin, no matter how obvious or how internal, finds its value and its horribleness not in the sort of horizontal consequences, but in the beauty and the dignity of the one against it it's committed against. I, I, I know I give this illustration often, but I think it's very, very helpful for me to think about the severity of human sin. I talk about this idea of where sin gets its, its value from. And it doesn't get it from horizontal consequences. So if, if somebody ran up on the stage right now and in the middle of this sermon slapped me across the face, well, that would be unfortunate and it would be really, really awkward. And depending on my mood, I might, try and, I might try and get a little something back. But basically, the consequences would stop there, right? Right? But if this were King Arthur's England, and King Arthur were standing up here on this stage, and we were all plebeians in his kingdom, and some peasant boy somehow breaks through the Knights of the Round Table, jumps up on the platform, and slaps King Arthur in the face, (laughs) the punishment's going to be much more severe, right? Same offense, different punishment. Friends, on an infinitely, infinitely, infinitely grander scale, even the seemingly smallest act of human rebellion deserves eternal wrath and judgment. We have all traded in God's all-satisfying, all-good, all-beautiful way for petty rebellion. And God is just and wise to judge the earth and us. Which leads us to chapter 8. Let's read. Verse 1. And here now is the hope of the gospel. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. 
The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heaven, heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. You know, uh, much money has been spent trying to find the ark. And have you ever thought about why God, you know, doesn't have these artifacts still around, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant? Like, you know, Indiana Jones didn't really find that, right? And like, where is the ark today and the cross and like the shroud of Jesus? You know why I think that God has not caused these things to survive? Not because he doesn't want to give us another evidence, but he knows we're such idolaters, right? Like, if we could find the ark, I mean, there would be little pieces of the ark in every gift shop from Jerusalem to San Diego, right? And we would, we would have little shrines over a piece of wood. But God in his kind providence has allowed us not to find the remnants of the ark. And the waters, verse 5, continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. There, then he set forth a dove from, sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided on the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, so it's been about 13 months now, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, just the fresh air alone, I'm sure, was wonderful. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So we see a recreation of God's command to Adam. God is resetting his command to this new man, Noah. It's a recreation of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, Verse 18, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will, 
Neither will I ever again strike down living creatures as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And finally, in chapter 8, we see clearly a picture of God's gracious salvation. In fact, I think that's what this whole story is about, is that God has in saving Noah, calling Noah out and providing for him this ark, God is not destroying humanity. He is saving humanity through one man. And friends, that's the story of the gospel. That through Jesus' life and righteousness, which needed no help like Noah did, and through his death and resurrection, God is saving humanity through one man. But unlike Noah, who had to ride on top of the floodwaters, Jesus takes the floodwaters on himself. You see, judgment in the flood is incomplete. Because we're going to read next week, and Wayne is going to preach next week. And what does Noah do? I mean, it, is, it hasn't even been just a few days. What does Noah do after? We think, okay, things are going to be better now, right? Adam, golly, bad start. Cain, ugh, Lamech, God, what a freak. Okay, shake the answer, sketch God. Come on. What does Noah do in the first few verses? Gets drunk and acts stupid, Right? So this judgment is incomplete because sin is still a problem. And Noah's escaping of the judgment is incomplete. Where Noah is on the top of the floodwaters, the new and better Noah, which is Jesus, which this whole story points to, absorbs the floodwaters and drinks them dry, friends. Now there's no more ocean, there's no more rain, there's no more spring from the deep that will bear down on the heads of those that are in the ark because Jesus has dried the judgment of God for all that will turn from their rebellion, turn from their idolatry, turn from their rejection, and find safety in the ark, which is Christ. And in that ark, friends, is not the denial of joy. It's not that there's all this great stuff out here. And, oh, boy, being a Christian means I've got to tuck in my shirt now and comb my hair and be a good little boy and watch Leave It to Beaver. No. There's provision. There's abundance. There's joy in the ark. And God commands you, friend, He commands you and he pleads with you to come into that ark of Christ. And he is patient with us. Friends, if you're in that ark of Christ, let this story produce humility in you. Let it produce worship in you. Let it produce joy. Friends, if in God's kind providence he has made you aware that you are not, Friends, you need not gather animals, gather wood, offer some sacrifice, do better, commit to coming to church, sign up for this, do that, repeat this thing. You need to look away from yourself and look to the 
door, which is Christ. He's the door. He's the ark. He's the judge. He's the justifier. He is everything that you need. Look away from yourself and look to Christ even now. Don't get caught up in all these little religious steps, friends. That is death. Look to Christ who is life, who is better than the rebellion that you're in right now. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I pray now that you would take your word and that you would make it like an arrow to our hearts. To the Christians, God, stir our heart with humility and joy and worship at your kindness in us that you, for the judgment to come, which will be far more severe than any flood, that you have spared us because Jesus has taken the floodwaters of your wrath upon himself and he has extinguished them. And Lord, let that produce in me a ferociousness to fight the remaining petty idols in my life so that I and every other Christian in this room becomes a better representation of the beauty and the joy and the satisfaction of life on the ark. Do that in me, God. Let me not just be kind of familiar with this story, but let it produce in me joy and humility and worship. And Lord, for my friends in this room who do not know you, God, would you give them realization of that? Would you give them a picture of your holiness? Would you give them a picture of the dreadfulness and sorrow and despair of sin? And would you give them the very thing that you require of them, which is faith in Christ alone? And would they look away from counterfeit joys and broken pleasures and idols, and self-trust, and self-worship? And would they look in faith to the only one that satisfies, Jesus, the door, the ark, the judge, the justifier, the new and better Noah, who saves, who has provided a way who alone is good and who offers life for all who trust in him. Lord, would you do that? As we respond now, Lord, cause us to see Jesus and to worship him. In your name I pray. Amen.